The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. And we return again today to this very practical section of Jesus' teaching in which he speaks of a condition that is common to every generation. It is common to every race. It's common to every family, to every individual. And unfortunately, this is a problem that is common to believers as much as it is to, it seems like, to unbelievers. No one escapes this issue unscathed, and if it's left unchecked, it can be debilitating. And certainly for Christians, it can ruin our peace and happiness and render us ineffective in the Lord's service. Now, the issue that we're discussing is worry. It is anxiety, and as I've stated in the previous messages, it is fundamentally a fear of death. How will we live? How will we prolong our lives in a way that is commensurate mostly with our desires, but not necessarily proportionate to our needs? And our desires manifest themselves in preoccupation with material goods, to the point that they become all-consuming and they become the focus of life itself. In other words, what we're able to gain for ourselves and how we can protect ourselves becomes the purpose of life. And that purpose is in conflict with God and His true purposes for our existence. Worry and anxiety are often, as I said, debilitating problems. They are psychological problems. Psychologists and psychiatrists have said if they could get rid of worry, much of their patients' problems could be cured without any further treatment. Charles Mayo of the Mayo Clinic said, it affects, that is worry, affects circulation, the heart rate, the glands, the nervous system. And he added that I've never known a man to die of overwork, but many die of worry. And if you ask psychiatrists, many times the answer for this problem is to take sedatives, take Prozac, medicate your worry uh, until you're in a stupor and you're just too stunned to care anymore. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I think about medications. I mean, there are truly medical conditions that require this type of treatment, but the common anxieties that we feel by being too consumed with what's going on with the world politically, socially, and economically is treated biblically in a different way. And thankfully, the Bible has a much better answer for worry. And it doesn't involve taking charge of everything and putting it into our own hands and playing king of our own kingdom, but rather yielding to the one who has all authority and fulfills his promises that he has made to his people. Just about anybody can take Prozac, but the Bible's cure is for a much more select group. It's for those who know Christ and understand who God is, and they know the person to whom they can take all of their troubles and turn it all over to him. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, casting all your cares upon him, for he careth for you. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, our text verses are an expansion of these thoughts, that is, casting all of your cares upon Christ, coming to him for rest and calmness in your soul. This is about Christ's care for you, and these verses are a reasoned argument why you shouldn't worry, and why it's even sinful to worry. If you look at our text verses beginning in verse number 22 of Luke chapter 12, And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, 
what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are you better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? And I'll just mention that we uh, discussed that last week and what Jesus is all really talking about. Here's the length of your life. Who can add to the length of his life? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass which today, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye, of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms, provide for yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Today we want to concentrate on the last three verses of this text. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that you have and give alms. Provide for yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not. Where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now this is the third part of our message, Why Worry? We are a people that we're full of anxiety. And as I said, it's a condition that isn't unique to us. Every generation before us has suffered from the same ill. It's sometimes greater than others. But I I, I think that in this group today, we could probably all agree that these are the worst of times. And the reason that we believe that this is the worst of times is not because we've read the historical records and we've taken care to compare our times to past times And through that, we've determined these times are the worst. Now, we think this is the worst because we are experiencing these times. We're in it. We're living through it. This is information that has passed through the lens of personal experience, and that will always be worse than things that we can read about in the past. So we believe this has to be the worst of times. Two years of pandemic has changed the psychological, emotional framework of our lives. And if I am to confine my comments just to Christian people, I continually receive bad news. I keep reading bad news. I read about churches and how churches are failing because people have simply not returned after this long absence of two years. And there are many stories like this one that I want to tell, but I I read of one church that was over 200 years old. And in 200 years, you can imagine the storms that that church must have weathered. But what they couldn't weather was the apathy and complacency of Christians who fell out of church and never regained the commitment that it takes to keep the church alive. Each month, I receive a report from the California Association of Regular Baptist Churches. And each of those reports has a list of churches that don't have pastors. And many of them have been on that list for years. They don't have pastors because people are leaving. Buildings are aging. We're talking about California. People are leaving. Buildings are aging. And there isn't enough support for a full-time pastor. And so, in other words, other parts of the country become more attractive to people and prospects for the ministry that come out of colleges, Bible colleges and seminaries, bypass this area as they're looking for churches to serve. Even though this is a great mission field, they have to bypass this area because it's not financially possible. 
And then added to this problem is that pastors feel the same discontent that's felt by the rest of the population. And surveys, just a very recent survey, has shown that up to 42% of pastors have left or are considering leaving the ministry. And that pressure is reflected in our own church because try as we may to attract people to a second service on Sunday or a midweek service on Wednesday, people will not return. And I don't have an answer for that except that Christians have become apathetic. They're not Christ-centered. And it doesn't matter what form you give them the teaching of the Word, they just don't want it. I had this conversation with one of our members recently There are some who want preaching in the afternoon, and they won't come without it. But then we provide preaching in the afternoon. We did it just a few weeks ago and even had food with it, and they wouldn't return. Then you have the other side of that. You have some people that say, well, I don't really want the preaching in the afternoon. We get that on Sunday morning, so we want a Bible class where we can discuss the Word. And so we provide that, and they don't come. What's the problem? Well, I think it is a lack of Christ-centeredness. And no matter what form you give the word to the people, no matter what form it comes in, there just isn't a commitment to it. Recently, I was reading the history of Baptists in our country. And we have a, a long past in this country. Some of the first ones that came over to this country were Baptist people. And the Baptists uh, grew exponentially in the first few years of our country. But I read that after the First Great Awakening, there came such a rejection of religion in everyday life that clubs called infidel clubs were organized. Now, you you might not think that could possibly be true because we have this thinking in our minds that the past history of this country religiously was one where our forefathers were greatly god, great godly people. All of them were. And that's simply not true. As I said, after the First Great Awakening... There was such a fall-off of religion that they organized infidel clubs. Can you imagine that there would be such debauchery and wickedness to the extent that Christians stopped caring about religious education? There was no family life that encouraged spirituality. There was none that centered on following the Lord and certainly not going to church. And it took a major revival that broke out mostly in Kentucky in the early 19th century, and then it spread to the rest of the country. And in Kentucky alone, in this great revival, there were 30,000 people who were baptized and added to Baptist churches. And that was when Kentucky was the frontier of this country. Well, I believe that we are back to the infidel clubs. Maybe we don't have the official organization of them, But in our lifetime, we have never seen such wickedness in high and low places and everywhere in between. When the Supreme Court discussion of Roe v. Wade was leaked, you never saw such angst among people who want to kill babies. That angst was palpable. It still is. Our politicians can't think of living without the right to kill unborn babies. You listen to the political commercials on television for this primary that's coming up. I have not heard one commercial, in this area at least, where the politicians did not swear to be committed to the killing of the innocent. And I'm not talking about arbitrary rulings of first trimester killings. I'm speaking of being able to kill a baby all the way up to the moment that it is born. And not only that, there is a bill before the California legislature that allows for the killing of babies after they've been born, even up to days after they've been born. So this is the world that we live in. It's discouraging, very discouraging. But folks, I remind you that it's not worse than the world that the apostles lived in, in first century Roman Empire. The Romans had their LBGTQ movement. They had their murderous practices in which fathers could kill their children, living children. And abortion certainly wasn't an issue. The apostles did not give up. They didn't give up. 
They didn't say, well, let's build a utopian society of Republicans and let's all move there. No, the world was not hopeless. The empire needed the gospel of Christ. It needed to be preached. And so they weathered the apathy of Christians and they kept preaching to the lost and they kept encouraging the saved. And this is how the world was evangelized. It was evangelized by commitment. Christianity dies without commitment. The church dies without commitment. And without that commitment to Christ-centered Christianity, we can't survive. And it starts right here. It starts right with faithfulness and attendance to the place where God's word is preached. Without that, we will be consumed with worries. All sorts of anxieties because God will not let you live without them if you are not faithful. Without faithfulness. We weather storms through faithfulness. So yes, Christians likewise are worried about their lives. How will they live? How much better can they fare? How much better can they fare if they do this or they do that? So we have this standard of living that we think we must be able to obtain or maintain. And for Christian people, we need to be very seriously realigned to understand at what level God wants us to live. Instead, we choose to live to the level that we want. We choose the level for ourselves. And trying to maintain your standard over God's standard always leads to higher levels of anxiety. Now, I also want to point out again how serious is the sin of materialism. Worry is a terrible sin because it comes from a lack of faith and it strikes at the veracity of God. The Bible says that whatever is not of faith is sin. God says he will take care of us. And when you worry, in effect, that's calling God a liar. You insist that you need to do things for yourself. And if you don't, you'll be miserable. Perhaps you will even die. Well, God will not let you die. Not because of the lack of the world's provision. Because if you are his child and he has saved you and called you for his eternal purpose, you can be sure that he will accomplish that purpose. And not until that purpose is done will you die. And then when you do, there's nothing that you could have done to prolong your life. Even as Hezekiah learned in that encounter with Isaiah that we spoke about last week. God didn't allow Christ to become a sacrifice for your sins and to endure suffering and death that he went through to turn you loose and leave you to squirm under the weight of your self-sufficiency. And so in this section, Jesus says, here's why you shouldn't worry. Have faith in God and turn all that anxiety over to him. Well, before we look at these last verses of the section, let me briefly review with you four ideas about life that we've looked at this far. And you may say, well, we're tired of the reviews. And I decided, well, there is too much here to cover, so I am going to keep this part short. But I remind you that Jesus often reviewed the material from his sermons. He kept telling the people over and over again. So we look at this, we remember that when Jesus says, take no thought, that that means, the saying means, don't worry, don't be anxious. So first of all, we noted the preparation of life. When Jesus said, take no thought, he didn't mean, throw caution to the wind, let go and let God, just let God take over and he'll send the mailman by your house every week with a check. And we noted that Jesus said birds don't sow the fields, they don't reap the harvest, they don't store their food in barns, God takes care of them. But it doesn't mean the birds don't go out and get their food. It doesn't mean they don't pull worms out of the ground. It doesn't mean they look for material for their nest. If they care to do their work, God supplies for them. Same for us. God makes sure the food is there, the shelter is there. You need to prepare and be industrious. So there's nothing that Jesus says here that, that precludes all of us from being responsible. As parents, as, as a husband or wife or a worker, we, we must take care of our families. The second thought about life is the composition of life. Verse 23 says, The life is more than meat and the body 
more than raiment. And here, Jesus means that God put material things here for you. He did not put them here for you to be ruled by them. The material exists for you and not you for the material. So Jesus argues, if God takes care of birds and flowers, the most insignificant parts of his creation, how much more does he take care of man? Man, humans who are created with reason and aptitude, created in the image of God for the purpose of bringing glory to him through the life that he has given. The Westminster Catechism begins, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So there, God, that's what God created you for, to glorify him. He saved you for that purpose. He sustained you for that purpose. And the material, all these other things are trivial pursuit as far as God is concerned. And God wants to keep you in a state of dependence upon him through which you will glorify him for the daily provision that he gives. Thirdly, we looked at the exhortation about life. This part is about relationship. Verse number 24, Jesus said, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are you better than the fowls? A relationship is introduced by the phrase, God feedeth them. Matthew records it this way, Your heavenly Father feedeth them. So he doesn't say that, that the birds have a heavenly father. He's your heavenly father. That's the emphasis here. It's about relationship that you have with him through Jesus Christ. Your faith in Christ makes you a child of God. So no more than your little children get up in the morning and worry about whether we have breakfast today. You don't need to get up and worry about it. The care for his creation is an expression of God's common grace versus his care for the believer, which is special redeeming grace. God's common grace provides for his creatures like the birds and the bees, the flowers, frogs, and so forth that don't have a personal relationship. And Jesus simply says, aren't, aren't you much better than they? Doesn't God consider you more than them? His special redeemed uh, grace for the redeemed through Jesus Christ by the blood of Christ is particular. And that points directly at you. You are better than all these other things because Christ died specifically for you. He came into the world for you. He lived a perfect life for you. He died an agonizing death for you. And he arose from the grave for you. You are different than all the rest of the creation in relationship. God chose you out of a heart of mercy, love, and grace. He made you a special object to shower his goodness upon. And if he has done so much to claim you, he will not turn loose of you. So if you stop thinking about yourself and you think about God's eternal purposes, then you will realize that everything is in God's hands and what God holds in his hands is always safe and secure. Fourthly, we looked at the expectation of life. This part is about faith. God wants to move you beyond saving faith. Now, of course, you must have saving faith. That's where the relationship comes from. But faith is not to stop at the point of salvation. You must live by faith. In verse 30, Jesus said, O ye of little faith. And he's not speaking of their saving faith. He's speaking specifically to the disciples, and he's talking about their sustaining faith. And what many, many Christians do, they stop trusting God at their initial faith, and then they think the rest of all of this is up to them. Well, Jesus says if you're that type of person who's constantly worrying, then you are a person with little faith. Doubt is opposed to faith. It's faith's opposite. And once again, Paul said in Romans 14, whatever, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Doubt is the opposite spectrum of faith. Worry is sin. And so your expectation of life is that because Christ saved you, he will take care of you. You expect it because that's one of the many exceeding precious promises that permeate the word of God. 
So do you see why this is so serious? No wonder Christians live in defeat. Christians struggle with the most meager of spiritual issues. You will never accomplish anything for God. You will never grow out of baby Christianity until you become a person of more than little faith. If God says it, if he says he will do it, then you expect him to do it. In fact, in verse 30, Jesus said that Christians that worry over such things are no better than heathens. He said the nations of the world seek after these things. So, speaking to the disciples and an eavesdropping Jewish crowd, this was just another way of saying that pagans, heathens, the ungodly, they're the ones that worry over these things. No born-again child of God should have the mind of a heathen. Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. Now, that's the review. There was much said about those four thoughts about life. If you didn't get get those, uh, if you didn't hear the exposition of those, then get those parts of the messages and consider them very carefully. So we move on now to the last three thoughts about life and worry. And I say these are the last three, but you can trust me on this. I, I, I feel my inadequacy to deal with all that's here. Jesus was a profound teacher. These words have occupied thousands of sermons. Uh, I doubt very seriously if you'd like to hear parts 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 of a sermon about worry. So I'm going to end with these last three points. These are the last three I deal with, but I'm sure if you spend some personal time in these scriptures, you will be able to preach some sermons too. Number five is the submission of life. Verse 29, And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If I could summarize these last few words, I would say, Who is your God? In what kingdom do you live? In what kingdom do you live? Let's turn our Bibles now to Colossians chapter 1. These are some verses that delineate two kingdoms. And we're all in one or the other. We're all in one or two or the, of these two. In Colossians chapter 1, and beginning in verse number 12, the apostle says, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet, that is, made us fit, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now, if you are a part of the kingdom of darkness, then I would say, worry all you want. You should worry. I would be worried night and day if I was still in the kingdom of darkness. At least get worried enough about it that you would do something about it. If I was in the kingdom of darkness, then it would be natural for me to be occupied with materialism, but I'm no longer in that kingdom, so it is not natural for me to be occupied with material uh, things. If you have been translated into a different kingdom, then what is in that kingdom that should occupy you? Well, Christ's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And so we occupy ourselves with righteousness. Now, you're there in First Colossians. Turn a couple of pages over to the third chapter. And the apostle comments on these kingdoms and not coincidentally on Jesus' evaluation of these kingdoms in our text. In Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above. Isn't that what we read in Luke 12? Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. This is what it means to seek the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave a beatitude about righteousness. A beatitude is something that will make you supremely happy. 
Do you want fulfillment and happiness in your life? Well, if you do, then Jesus gave a beatitude about righteousness. He said, blessed. The word means happy. Blessed, happy are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The thoughts change here. They change from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The translation into the kingdom of God's dear son. We were worried. We were worried that we were not filled with pork roast and chicken wings and mashed potatoes and gravy. We were worried in that kingdom about status, about designer stuff, when all of that is inconsequential in God's kingdom. Those are so minor compared to God's plans and purposes that they hardly rate a mention. Christ-centeredness in his kingdom is to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is there a reason we can't get God's people interested in more than an hour of week of, of teaching or even no time for teaching? Yes, there is a reason. There's too much hungering and thirsting for everything else. Christians are already full of other things, leaving no room for God. God's work is eternal work. I mean, you, you must grasp the comparison here. God deals with eternal souls. God deals with the vastness of the universe. What are the cares of life compared to what God deals with? So instead of submitting to materialism and be controlled by circumstances, can't you see yourself in God's kingdom? And in God's kingdom, you do God's business. You do kingdom business. Our business is God's business. And if it relates to the rule of this vast universe, this vast kingdom, then what are we doing worrying about the trivial stuff of our lives? It makes me wonder why there's so much struggle with commitment. I can't figure why Christians have a thousand other things to do to keep out of God's service when our singular purpose, according to the word of God, is to serve Christ in his kingdom. Now, I understand why believers don't seek God's kingdom, but why should a believer act and live as if he is still in the kingdom of darkness? And when you serve the dollar, that's what you're doing. You're serving yourself in that kingdom instead of God. Now, I'd also like to point out that seeking God's kingdom means having an exponential growth of faith. Now, in Colossians, turn over to Philippians Back up a, few, uh, a little bit there to Philippians, and let's read this passage in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Here we have Paul again, the exemplary Christian, though not yet where he wanted to be, which is complete in Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to apprehended. That is, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect, and that means mature, mature in our Christianity, let us therefore as many of us be mature, be perfect, be thus minded. We should all have this mind. This one thing I do. This is his preoccupation with the kingdom. This one thing I do. And that is to set aside all personal desires, knowing that God will take care of what we need. It's to put our focus on one thing, the place that it belongs. What has God called me to do? What does God want me to be? How can I serve God in his kingdom? And lay up treasures in heaven. And when these are the focus, you begin to know God better. And as you know God better, faith keeps increasing. Faith grows. And the more faith grows, the more you can separate yourself from the cares of this life and leave all the worries behind. And so if you search in your mind trying to figure out what does it mean to live a victorious Christian life, this is it. And if you want to know what the Bible means by joy, this is it. You become so focused on God and his calling for your life that the greatest trouble that comes to your life is just, it's no more than a pebble that you kick out of the way. Why? Because God already has it handled. God knew it was there. And in some cases, God put it there. 
And he put it there to increase your faith to handle it. Unsaved people will never get this. It doesn't resonate with them. They are perplexed when they see Christians unfazed. Unfazed when facing health issues, death issues, or other problems. We've had memorial services in our church and... Sometimes unsaved people will get up to speak uh, during that time that we offer for people to make comments. And unsaved people will sometimes get up and they will comment on the person's faith. And they will say, I don't understand it, but that, but this person faced death without fear. And then let me add this. If you're jotting down notes today, you want to take this down. Write, in this, write this in somewhere. Write down holiness. The holiness of your life. Takes care of anxiety issues. If you are pure in heart, you will see God. Didn't Jesus say that? If you are pure in heart, if you live a clean life, if you have all the vices and junk that fill up your life, if you remove all of that, you are a person who can live without worry. The Christian who is always set off by little things and falls apart at every little pothole, that's a person holding on to the things that prevent service. And so we have, and I don't know about here, but they're very miserable Christians because they have their eyes on something other than the kingdom of God. So the mind gets filled up with junk all of the time. You don't spend time in the Word. You can't pray as you should because you have so much guilt in your life that you're uncomfortable talking with God. Your life then is a ready-made recipe for worry. You can't avoid it. It takes you over because you act like you're living in a different kingdom. Separate, uh, Second Corinthians says, rather, separate from all of that. Come out from that. Live righteously. Get all that ungodly lifestyle away from you. And when you do, it says God will receive you. I didn't read those scriptures, but if you want to write down the reference, you'll find it in Second Corinthians six fourteen through 18. And God says, when you do it, I will receive you. John Gill commented on this by saying the Lord here promises that he would take care he would take them under the wings of his protection he would take care of them and preserve them keep them as the apple of his eye and be a wall of fire round about them whilst in this world and when he had guided them by his counsel here he would receive them into glory do you want the cure for worry there it is if you live a holy life if you live For the one who called you out of the kingdom of darkness and translated you into the kingdom of his dear son. He will receive you into everlasting habitations. And when you've got that, what's there to worry about? So let me say it one more time to make doubly sure that you get this point. Christ said, take no thought. Take no thought. Stop all that stuff. Get all the garbage out of your life stop the bad associations get rid of your bad habits get back into the word and do what it tells you to do James said draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh to you cleanse your hands ye sinners purify your hearts ye double minded the double minded person is the one trying to live in both kingdoms so submit to the right kingdom and the worry issues melt away Well, I want you to notice the end result of all the proceeding. Here's what you get out of preparation, composition, exhortation, expectation, and submission. You roll all of this together and you come out with number six, the fruition of life. Verse 31. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. All these things that you've been worried about, all that stuff that taxes you and makes you miserable, all that stuff that you were trying to get on your own and were burdened with, God will give it, or if it needs to be removed, he will take it. So what will God give you? Well, you just enumerate the things. Cadillacs, a house on a golf course, a vacation home in the woods. No, not that kind of stuff. You don't need that. In fact, those are more likely to take your minds off the kingdom of God. So God doesn't typically add those things. But your life will be fruitful in everything that counts. You'll get what you need because God already promised it. The unsaved labors for it. He keeps seeking it, but to no satisfaction. But not you. You reach stability. And you will be content with what God gives. And you will be fruitful. 
Like the scripture says, everlasting joy will be upon your head. You'll have all the fruits that, that of living a good Christian life that will make you contented. Jesus doesn't make the same promises as prosperity gospel preachers make. And that's because prosperity, earthly prosperity, is not his gospel. The prosperity gospel keeps you forever worried about what you have. And then you look at the world and you say, well, I don't have what they have. What's the problem here? I don't know of anything more damaging to the real spiritual health and prosperity of Christians than the prosperity gospel. And I know that seems paradoxical to say it that way, but the prosperity gospel is anything but prosperity or the gospel. Jesus didn't teach it. None of the apostles lived such a thing. And yet, all those who received the true gospel had the joy of life even though they lived in the midst of persecution. Explain that for me. Live for the eternal. And the temporal becomes inconsequential to you. As inconsequential as it is to God. Now there's one more thought. Verses 33 and 34. Sell that you have. And give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not. Where no thief approacheth. Neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Number seven, the confusion of life. This is the last one. And I guess it should be the final word for all of you that are worried. You are confused. You're mixed up people. And this last verse points out the foolishness of the way that you have tied yourself up in knots. We are accumulating to ourselves when God says we should do the opposite. We say that we must gain wealth, and he says we must shed wealth. How, how's that going to help our lives? That's nonsensical, isn't it? Or, or is it? We should divest ourselves of wealth that we depend on for the future and invest our wealth in a different place. Well, what, what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about actually more than money. You know, you, you think about this. You want that golden parachute for retirement. When God's word teaches that Christ is your golden parachute. Another great anxiety for all of us, of course, is the terrible economy. Gas prices are up. Food is up. Housing is up. Many of you have probably seen your 401ks decline or your IRAs. The stock market is volatile. We look at all this. Nothing seems safe. What are we going to do? What investment is safe? Putting your stock in the kingdom of God is safe. Putting your stock in God's kingdom lasts for eternity. Nobody can steal it. There is no market to fail. All is secure in God's hands. Now the best way to put that is that today is secure because you're living it. And tomorrow is equally as sure. There is no doubt about tomorrow. Can you imagine thinking about Thinking this way, that there's nothing in tomorrow that's not already handled? Can you imagine being so sure of this that you resist thinking of all the bad things that could happen? I love the way that Jesus concisely gets to the crux of the issue. And here is the damaging part about worry. Again, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Double trouble. Double trouble. Worrying about what will happen tomorrow is double trouble. It's double confusing and confusing and double debilitating. If you constantly worry, why would you want to borrow from tomorrow's troubles to worry about? Why would you want to pack all of those troubles into all the troubles you're already worried about today? And so some of you lay awake all night, tossing and turning, trying to figure out things that sometimes are years before it could happen. When Jesus says the kingdom of God has plenty to occupy you. If you're prone to worry, today's problem is more enough, more than enough to worry about. You're living today, so that's not really a problem, is it? So if you get into tomorrow, you take more problems that you can't solve and heap them on top of today's problems that worrying doesn't solve. And so it's just double trouble, triple trouble, quadruple. Just depends on how much multitasking you think is prudent to deal with when you worry. So you think that this, this is all sick, it's counterproductive, it's confusing. 
If you live like that, you'll never have a day of peace because even if you have no real worries today, you borrowed from tomorrow's worries and so you can fill a day of no worry with worry. Does that make any sense? And it never ends because tomorrow's the same thing. As long as you live, every day is a day of worry because you keep stealing all those problems that are off in the future. Most of the time we worry over things that will never happen. And if they do happen, worrying didn't change it, did it? So why do you bother with it? It just makes you miserable in advance. I'm confused thinking about that. I mean, if this is the way you want to live, then take two Prozac. Call me in the morning. We'll talk about it. I love Adam Clark's comment about the opposite of take no thought or take no care. This is what he says. And Adam Clark, by the way, if you, if you like to know who these people are that I quote sometimes, he's a 19th century commentator. Uh, this preposterous conduct is that taking care is not only useless in itself, but renders us miserable beforehand. The future falls under the cognizance of God alone. We encroach, therefore, upon his rights when we would fain foresee all that may happen to us and secure ourselves from it by our cares. How much good is omitted? How many evils caused? How many duties neglected? How many innocent persons deserted? How many good works destroyed? How many truths suppressed? And how many acts of injustice authorized by those timorous forecasts of what may happen and those faithless apprehensions concerning the future? Let us do now what God requires of us, and trust the consequences to him. The future time which God would have us foresee and provide for is that of judgment and eternity, and it's about this alone that we are careless. How true, how true. We worry about a future that only God knows, and we don't have time to do what we already have to do. We are consumed with what we can't touch here and now, without being attendant to those things that we can touch here and now. And then he says, the only future that God wants us to be concerned about is judgment and eternity. And those two things we're careless about, totally careless about. In verse 20, Jesus said, in this present hour, your soul will be required of you. Now, if you want to bring this all down to the only thing that you might be anxious about, it would be this, be anxious about your eternal soul. Be anxious about how God will judge you. And if you've been anxious enough about that, you finally won't be anxious anymore. And this is another paradox. Worry enough about righteousness and judgment, and I promise you'll worry yourself out of worry. You will exhaust worry. So you see how Jesus leads us through this, works us through this. He just masterfully weaves all of these teachings together until he shows worriers what they should worry about, and then they wouldn't be worriers anymore. Pay attention to Jesus, and you won't be a worrier. You'll be a warrior. You'll be a warrior for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't want to end this message with the last point that says confusion. So let me take all the confusion out of your life, or let's say rather, let's let Jesus take all the confusion out of your life. You are a sinner. Your doubt and confusion proves it. You're concerned about this world because the world is all that you know. It's all that you understand. But one day, Jesus went to the cross to solve the problem of sin by providing a payment for sin that would bring us into this right relationship with God that we've been speaking about today. Jesus said, shed his blood on the cross. He said, whoever believes in this sacrifice that he made for sin will have everlasting life. In other words, he died to satisfy your greatest need. What you need more than anything is to be right with God. And according to this passage, when you are right with God, which is the greatest need, all lesser needs are a snap. If you constantly worry, Jesus can take care of that. He has a cure that's better than all the worldly counsel you can receive. It's better than the drugs the psychiatrist can give. Because Jesus, because Jesus prescribes promises, not Prozac. So when you trust him, you can count on his promise of everlasting life. Jesus offers a way out of confusion. And I am happy to say he will make good on his offer. He is God and his kingdom is worth seeking.
Casting all your care upon him. For he careth for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what Jesus said. If we could only grasp the depths of it and apply it, how much better would our lives be? I said before I started the message that we, we need to take a look at our lives and we need to understand where we are in, in this world and in your presence. And um, I said we, we wouldn't content ourselves, we could content ourselves rather than just reading the word of God, but how good is it for us to take thought of these things, to take thought, to consider very carefully what Jesus said, how he advises us, and not only advises us to live, and we need to obey what he says, and it solves so many problems that we try to cure in in other ways by taking thought for things that we have no control over. We why can't we just trust the future entirely up to you and not spend our lives tossing and turning and trying to figure it out all the time. Lord, thank you for your people and uh, thank you for them listening to the word of God and we pray Lord that we don't let these things just pass from one ear out the other. But we very carefully consider what's been said and that we take it to heart and we try to live what the word of God says. We pray for anyone here who might not know you as Savior because we have no hope for anybody concerning these things unless they have a relationship with you. And through your word, you tell us that Jesus Christ is the method of that relationship. And so we ask that if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, that they would put their faith in him. That you would draw them with your Holy Spirit, bring them to a realization of where they stand, and then that they would exercise repentance and faith, and that you would eternally save them. And then, Lord, we pray for the saved. Um, This message has been primarily, almost entirely, to those who know Jesus Christ, and all we need to do is exercise what we should already know. If we are growing Christians, sanctified Christians, growing the grace of Jesus Christ, these are things that we know, but unfortunately, we don't always put them into practice. Help us to be Christians of practice that we may fulfill your purpose. Thank you, Lord. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.